Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I retired as a sergeant at a Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And with me tonight is straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. You know, Phil, I just wanted to say something. The other night when we did the show on the mafia cops, you had misspoke about something, and it, it sort of just flew by us. You want to uh, correct that? Sure. Uh, you know, we were in the heat of the conversation. We were talking about the largest uh, corruption scandal in the history of the NYPD, which was Louis Impolito and Stephen Caracap the Mafia Cops. And I referenced uh, one of the other scandals that was famous in uh, in the NYPD, uh, Frank Serpico. When I re uh, referred to Frank, I said Frank Serpico was a corrupt narcotics cop or he exposed corruption and they had the NAP Commission following that. What I meant to say was Frank Serpico was a narcotics cop and he exposed corruption leading to the NAP Commission. Now, I never met Frank. I don't know Frank. He was retired way before I got on the job, and I had no reason to disparage him. So I just wanted to correct that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I knew as soon as I heard it that uh, it was just a slip of the tongue, you know, knowing you and, and Bill. Uh, but just for our audience who, who may not know who Frank Serpigo is, because you have this global audience I'm a little jealous of, <laughs> uh, but Frank Serpico was uh, an NYPD police officer and detective who was an honest cop, served honorably, and of, of his own accord, he exposed widespread corruption in the NYPD, which, as you pointed out, led to the NAP Commission. So, you know, that little misstep uh, in the way you said it, kind of painting him as a dirty cop. No, he was the furthest thing from a dirty cop. And I say this because I have a personal interest. I represent a lot of whistleblowers. In particular, I have this guy in Mount Vernon. And uh, as you know, we did a show on it. The Mount Vernon Police Department, as a result of his hard work and exposing this corruption, they're doing a pattern and practice investigation of the entire department. So, I mean, whistleblowers are very important. It's something that, you know, we, we need more of them to, to make this a better department for all of us. I mean, we all take such pride in our work as uh, police officers. And when we have these bad guys, and I know you hate them too, like Michael Dowd, you know, and, and the guys you're talking about last night, Caracappa and Ippolito, it just makes us all look bad. So, you know, that's just my two cents because I know Frank Serpico – he actually speaks up, you know, with some of my clients when they, uh, you know, they're in the news or whatever. He'll comment on it. So thanks, Frank. With regard to Frank, I stand corrected. And like I said, I, one thing I know about him is what you saw in the movie that Al Pacino played him. And, uh, you know, never met him, don't know him and uh, don't know anybody that worked with him. So there you go. Great. All right, folks, we're going to cover tonight. We're going to cover the uh, Gabby Petito uh, case and. Breaking news is that her family, her parents, uh, step-parents, they filed a lawsuit against uh, Brian Laundrie's Chris and Roberta Laundrie. And uh, we're just going to get to the police off the cuff song, and we'll be right back with that with that case. It's a show with two retired detectives. Now we're in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes. Even an interview with the most powerful folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. 
One episode, just saying you know. Get a little after, get an interview too. Hello, folks, and welcome back. So obviously this case filed by the family of Gabby Petito is a civil case against the laundries. And the difficult thing about it, and one of the uh, main reasons we brought uh, Joe Murray and invited Joe Murray to come on the show tonight is because we'll need some legal explanations. But when we think about being parents and what happened here and watching this case from the beginning and the twists and turns and Gabby being missing uh, when Brian returned home and no one knowing where Gabby was. And then about a month later, her body being discovered and then finding out the way she was killed, uh, strangulation with throttling. That's what it was described as by the medical examiner. And then it turns out there was also blunt trauma. And at the same time, we had Brian Laundrie. We believed that Gabby Petito was murdered on August 27th, 2021. And Brian drove home the next day, and there was some improprieties. There was some suspicious activity, uh, specifically on the phone. He comes home driving Gabby's van without Gabby. Very suspicious. You know, where where is Gabby? You think that he told his parents what happened? Those are the things that potentially we could have direct evidence that they, in fact, did know that. And that may weigh on the civil suit, and some of the other information that we'll find out. As you recall, the FBI was involved in this investigation, and the FBI is always very tight-lipped, and they don't give out their information. So we're finding out things now that we didn't find out during this investigation. And, you know, it's uh, it's troubling. This case is troubling. Uh, you know, it was international. People followed this all over the world. And everyone imagined Gabby Petito as their daughter and potentially Brian Laundrie as their son. And put yourself in each family's position. And what would you do? You know, it's like it reminds me of when I was a sergeant going to a basic management orientation course. They would show you these scenarios and then they would stop it and say, your move, Sarge. (laughs) Like, what do you do now? You know, and that's what this is. Your move, parents. What are you going to do? Phil. I'm going to let you go first. Well, uh, Billy, listen, uh, you know, we know all the details of what transpired between Gabby Petito and Brian, Brian Laundrie. We don't, however, know the exact details of what conversations or text messages took place between Brian and his mom. Now, he came back from the trip September 1st. We do know that. Uh, shortly thereafter, they enlisted the uh, the help of an attorney. Now, I'm sure that the FBI pulled his text messages when he obviously became suspect number one in the disappearance of Gabby Petito. So there may be something in those text messages. Don't forget, a few weeks back, the family had a uh, meeting with the FBI. They may have turned over some information that may have led to uh, this lawsuit. We don't know uh, the details of the text messages. And they may have even, when the search really focused on Brian, when he went off into the nature preserve, they may have pulled the text messages and phone records of uh, 
the laundry family. And again, there could have been some text messages about leaving the country because I think that's mentioned in a lawsuit. There could have been text messages about stay where you are. We're going to help you, whatever it was. I feel strongly that there has to be something that the attorney is going to hang his hat on to proceed with a lawsuit. Now, obviously we have Joe Murray here tonight. He's going to be able to take apart all the legal part of it. But from what I do know about lawsuits, specifically civil lawsuits, um, a judge is going to look at it and he's going to examine the merits of the case. Now, the merits of the case is going to be something that, you know, they're going to be able to say, well, based on this, Your Honor, whatever it is, text messages or a conversation that they can corroborate. Uh, we believe that the family knew about Brian's intentions of leaving and, and what happened to Gabby. So that's going to be very, very uh, uh, important for us to look at. Uh, I know that Joe is going to be able to take this apart from a legal standpoint, uh, but I think I'm correct saying that a judge can actually look at it and say, you know what, there's not enough here to proceed with this lawsuit and throw it out. Or he can rule that uh, the lawsuit has enough meat to it. Let's proceed with depositions. And then depositions, depositions would uh, begin for the parties that are named in the lawsuit. Uh, I guess on both sides, I think uh, Joe and I had a conversation last night about this. So he indicated, uh, I'll let him get into that, that there could be depositions on both sides. So I think that that's going to be important. What are they suing based on? They can't just assume that the, the laundries knew uh, what Brian had done to uh, Gabby. Uh, and, you know, did they aid in his uh, flight from justice? Joe, before, and I know you're dying to jump in there like this is uh, Judge Wapner back in the day, you know? You want to get in there. But there's one major, of course, legal issue uh, that we have to talk about, and that and that could hinge on the whole case. Did the laundries have any legal uh, reason that they had to talk, A, to the police, or B, to the Petito family? And that apparently is no. They had no legal they law didn't say you have to talk to the police and you have to talk to the Petito family. You want to elaborate on that, Joe? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and and make no mistake about it, if the FBI had any way to compel them to give a statement, they would have used it. The federal government, the all-powerful federal government, uh, they would use any means necessary to be sure. And if they did mis misstate something, you know, even like you, Philly, making a mistake there with that whole Frank Serpico thing, if you did that to the federal government, you could poten potentially be facing criminal time uh, for, you know, giving a false statement to the, the FBI. So the all-powerful FBI, if they had an obligation to report anything, they would have held them account to that. And so... You're correct, Bill. There is no legal duty for them to report uh, what they knew, if they knew anything. And I'll just say, I had always suspected that they did know that she was dead. Maybe not all the details or how it happened, uh, but I suspected that they did know, um, which is why, uh, you know, I believe that's the basis of this suit. They believe they knew and that by failing to tell them that she was dead, that caused them mental anguish. So, you know, this lawsuit is, is uh, kind of interesting. I mean, generally for a, a negligence claim, 
there's four elements, duty, breach, causation, and harm. The first one, the first element, duty. Did they have a duty to report to the parents what they knew about Gabby? And again, assuming they knew, we, we don't have facts to support that or evidence that they knew. We knew that they were in touch with Brian, but whether or not he revealed it, especially via telephone, uh, that's a different story. But that's the first element. Did they have a duty? So certainly if it was a minor child and, you know, like I, I let my daughter go to your house for a play date with your daughter, uh, you would have a duty as the, you know, guardian right there to, to supervise uh, their minor children. But in this case, they're not minor children. They're both adults. And in fact, she's an emancipated adult. She left home, I think, right after high school. So, you know, that I don't see the legal duty. I was just playing around with this and looking through, because I don't know, and I should make that clear, I'm not a Florida attorney. I'm not admitted to practice in Florida, although I am going to write a letter to uh, Governor DeSantis to see if he would give uh, you know, reciprocity for New York lawyers to come down there in light of all this madness. You know, I'd like to enjoy the freedoms of Florida instead. Joe, of you can't leave us because you're our only paid ad. Lots <laughs> of New York, uh, you know, mandates and whatnot. But in any event, I took a look at it, and uh, there was one case that I found which was kind of was kind of interesting. It actually talks about an omission. So when you have a duty, then you have to determine whether there was a breach of that duty and it can be by an act or an omission. So like, for example, like a child abuse case, the failure to report it if you're a mandated reporter is an omission that you could be held accountable for criminally and civilly. So in this case, I was like, hmm, we're talking about an omission. Not that they did anything to contribute to the death of Gabby Petito, but they omitted potentially information that they may have known. Uh, they're also even talking about information they knew about Brian's whereabouts or may have known about, uh, which is, is kind of unusual the way this. You know, this Joe, just, just to interrupt you, and now would, you know, there's so many things in this case that, you know, and, and of course you can never assume people knew this or knew that, but I, I, I would find it very difficult to believe that he didn't tell his parents that he killed Gabby. I would find that very difficult to believe. I would also find it very difficult to believe that he went camping, that he intended after he kills his girlfriend, he goes and they go on a camping trip. You know, something with that is not, you know, my family never went on a camping trip together, even in good times. So, but these are bad times. They're going camping together. And the, the other thing is that I found it a bit negligent and, you know, you can respond to this of the attorney not to show up in Florida. I really did. He shouldn't have been representing them if he wasn't going to show up in person because Brian Lundy killed himself. And how are you going to know what his mental condition is over the phone or talking to the parents? You need, if you're going to represent them, you need boots on the ground in Florida. And he didn't do that. And I mean, the other thing was, and we criticized this all through the investigation. He didn't, he didn't see a camera that he didn't like. He was on every damn news program. Big there was, by the way. you know, 
Yeah, a huge mistake. He's like Alec Baldwin. Same thing. Alec yeah. Baldwin is hanging himself with his own words, going on all. And this lawyer did the same thing. He was. He wasn't. He wasn't the sharpest tack in the drawer. And he's trying to. He's trying to do battle with some of these very Ashley Banfield. I thought eviscerated him. You know, and he didn't have to go talk to her. And then she was like, I want you to come on again tomorrow. I, I think I got another appointment. He wanted no part of her again, you know? Billy, may, let me make a quick point about the, the point that you just made in the early part of your statement. Um, he comes back. Uh, Gabby is obviously already killed. He's back on the first. A couple of days later, they go out and buy this camper, and they go on this camping trip. Now, I think that was before the real media focus had uh, really got going, and I think there might have been a plan in place to hide him into the woods or he was going to take the camper and go off and try and get out of the country, whatever it may be. That's the details that may be found in cell phone records and stuff like that. I mean, when you think about it, why suddenly did they go out and buy this camper? He comes home from a, a two month long camping trip or whatever you want to call it, a cross country trip. He kills his girlfriend. He comes home and they decide to buy this camper and they go test it out for a couple of days. They come back when they realized there was too much media focus and there was too much scrutiny and maybe there was, there was too much, uh, you know, surveillance on them. And, you know, the plan changed, but whatever it was, all of these things are going to come forward. I think in, you know, uh, whatever the FBI uncovered, and, you know, um, th there's, a, there's a couple of things that just really stand out about that with regard to the family. Like, you know, uh, we called them out in the beginning. We said that we thought that they were culpable and involved in it. But again, now you brought up the attorney. He talked about how there was negotiation between the family and the FBI. What was that about? Did they have them cold in the trick bag for criminal charges? And they were trying to get them to cooperate, to bring uh, Brian in or to tell where, you know, where uh, Gabby's whereabouts were. That's one of the things that that's very, very uh, fishy to me. And, and that's one of the things I'd love to know what that was all about. I just want to play a little of this by J.B. Uh, DeBuno pinpointing the date of august 27th and they're also saying that there was blunt force injury trauma to gabby petito now this was not outlined in the report by teton county coroner dr brent blue last year the cause of death was revealed to be manual strangulation but now joseph petito and nicole schmidt gabby's parents is, are alleging that in addition to there being manual strangulation uh, in addition to manual strangulation being the cause of death, that there were also blunt force injuries to the head and neck, uh, which also, which now again, these are allegations without evidence, but it speaks to a little bit more about what Gabby Petito's final moments might have been like. Uh, we move on to point number 15. Gabrielle Petito was 22 years of age at the time of her death. I highlight again here point number 16. Listen closely. After Brian Laundrie murdered Gabby Petito, Brian Laundrie, sent text messages back and forth between his cell phone and Gabrielle Petito's cell phone in an effort to hide the fact that she was deceased. Before we move to point 17, we have talked about this at great length on WFLA Now and previous live streams that the text messages gave Nicole Schmidt, Gabby's mom, just a bit of a strange feeling that something wasn't right. And now that we have these, these text messages that are between Gabby's phone and Brian's phone, it just, it, what they are saying is, is that they're reading between the lines here. 
This point is alleging that this was part of now a cover-up to try to make it seem as if Brian Laundrie had nothing to do with Gabby's murder. This is, again, reading into this document that has been filed, uh, a civil lawsuit by the Petito family. Let's go on to point. These next three points are all massively significant. So if you're really, if you're joining this live stream for just in, uh, the next few minutes, this is really where we're getting to the nuggets that are really new and speak volumes as to what Gabby's family is alleging. On August 27th, 2021, it is believed that Brian Laundrie sent a text to Nicole Schmidt in which he referred to Gabrielle Petito's grandfather, Stan, by name. Gabrielle Petito never called her grandfather by his name. This goes back now to the text message, the Stan text message that was sent to Nicole Schmidt, which was so bizarre to Nicole. And I've talked to Nicole in the past about how strange this was because who calling your grandfather by their first name and not, you know, a, a common nickname like Papa or grandpa or something like that was very, very unorthodox. And, and Nicole Schmidt had very, very strong feelings connected to that text message that something wasn't right, that something was drastically wrong. Point number 18, it is believed and therefore averred that on or about August 28, 2021, Brian Laundrie advised his parents, Christopher Laundrie and Roberta Laundrie, that he had murdered Gabrielle Petita. On that same date, Christopher Laundrie and Roberta Laundrie spoke with attorney Steve Bertolino and sent him a retainer on September 2nd, 2021. Now, the online sleuths that have paid a whole lot of attention to the story and have pieced together the timeline, I'm really calling out the folks on Reddit who have really gravitated towards this story. Uh, six figures large on Reddit was the uh, Gabby Petito subreddit piecing together the timeline. And sending him a retainer on September 2nd is going to raise some eyebrows based on what some people have put back and forth on social media, specifically on Reddit. But let's just go over the big point here in point number 18. What they are alleging, Gabby, Gabby Petito's family is alleging that the day after Brian murdered Gabby, that he informed his parents that he did murder Gabby. And this was the time when Brian was traveling home in the van to Florida or approaching the time. It's in the time frame where he was making his trip in the van back to Florida. And that at that point for that journey, this is, it is being alleged that Christopher Laundrie and Roberta Laundrie spoke with attorney um, Steve Bertolino. This is the first time we're mentioning Bertolino by name. I want to make it very, very clear and very, very um, uh, transparent to our entire audience. The first thing I did in receiving this document, as far as its publication on WFLA.com, was reach out to Steve Bertolino for comment. He offered no comment. Stephen Bertolino. Some powerful stuff in that, you know, Joe. And one of the things that, and I know lawyers don't lie, but Stephen Bertolino said that he started representing them on the 11th, September 11th. However, he received a retainer on September 2nd. You can't tap dance around that and said, well, I got the retainer, but I really didn't start doing work till the 11th. You know, I, I mean, I believe that's what he he was like splitting hairs. I remember watching that interview and they said, what was the first uh, act? And he said the 11th. You know, because that was the first thing he did, whatever it was. But right. that didn't mean that's when he got retained. So I think, you know. But he all Joe, he also tried to tap dance by saying, 
oh, I've represented them their whole lives uh, yeah. when they were on, for over 20 years. Yep. You, you, Joe, you can't say I'm their attorney and every single thing that happens, they hide behind lawyer-client privilege because you represented them 20 years ago on a lawnmower dispute. You know what I mean? Yeah, but uh, attorney-client privilege attaches in the very simplest way. I mean, you just need to contact an attorney about a legal issue, and that becomes, as long as it was uh, in secret, in private, uh, it becomes privileged. I mean, that's that's a simple... But, but the fact that he represented them, you know, 20 years ago, does that make him their attorney forever? No, but it, it makes it very simple that just the phone call... You know, without having to, you know, how people find attorneys, they call people, they watch police off the cuff, they see this advertisement. Hey, let me Joe Murray's our man. <laughs> <laughs> but they knew him and they had a relationship with him. So it was probably like, hey, Steve, I, uh, I'm going to need your help with this. You know, it was probably very simple. And that conversation, as long as it meets the elements that it was done in privacy, it was about a legal issue. Uh, that's privilege. And we want that. We want the ability to speak freely with an attorney. We don't want to have to have a contract in place and all this stuff. Initially, you want that privilege to be there. Joe, you know, I want to really ask you this question, and I really don't know this, but I know that if any law enforcement officer is asked to be interviewed by the FBI, they say, no, I'm not talking to you. I have an attorney. Because they have been known to trick people into uh, into traps, into perjury traps, by and not even for lying, for, for remembering something differently. However, in Steve Bertolino, the attorney for the laundry's dealings with the FBI, he admitted to telling them discrepancies. Can a lawyer be held to the same level of accountability as a law enforcement officer? Was he lying? Or? That he admitted to discrepancies, like he gave them false. He told them something, and then he remembered it differently, or the date was wrong, and he changed the date after he told them a, a certain date. I mean, you know, if you, if a cop did that, he'd be in handcuffs the next day. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't think that's something that, uh, first of all, it's something no lawyer should do in the first place. You know, intentionally. Uh, providing false information and it should be actionable, you know, to do that. But I don't think that was the case. I mean, if he gave them, I, are you referring to when he told, when he first told them, uh, I remember watching one of the interviews where Brian was officially reported missing on Friday and he indicated that he was missing like Monday or Tuesday. I think, yeah, I'm sort of referring to that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that was the way it was described. Of course, I wasn't there and didn't listen to it. The way it was described, he said, I would speak to the FBI like twice a day. And it was late in the evening. I'm not sure if it was Monday night or early Tuesday morning. But I indicated in passing that Brian didn't come home, by the way. You know, it wasn't. So I, I don't know if you could really, you know, take action with something like that. Because, first of all, the attorney's informed by he's not a witness to a lot of this stuff so he's informed by so I, I wouldn't think it would be actionable against him unless it was so egregious misstatement of facts bill you must be dying to, to jump in here 
Well, yeah, I am. There's a couple of things, but the first thing I want to say is uh, the parents' posture and their actions from the day that he got home obviously were not very good. Uh, I mean, he comes home on the first, on the second, they're retaining an attorney. That's where I think uh, there may be some information on text messages where you can get, you know, you can jump to the leap that they knew about what had transpired. Uh, and I would think that, you know, the first thing when he walks through the door, I mean, had they, it sounds like there was conversation while he was traveling, but let's say there wasn't. The first thing he walks through the door after Gabby's been living there for a year, where's Gabby? And he had to give some type of an answer. So whether it was, I killed my girlfriend or she's missing, or I don't know, there was some type of, of an answer given. And, you know, I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but it sounds like based on what we're hearing in this lawsuit, that there's enough stuff, enough meat to hang your hat on that they knew about this. And again, I'm going to go right back to the negotiation between uh, the laundries and the FBI. Uh, you know, what, what was being said in there? They, they probably were presenting them with, let's say telephone evidence, um, you know, uh, the uh, text messages and asking them, you know, listen, you guys are very close to putting yourself in a trick bag for uh, accessory to a murder or whatever. And, you know, that's what I want to know. I want to know what those conversations were. And I'm, I'm dying to hear the details of this lawsuit. You know, Princess Mitch just raised the point in, um, that uh, Roberta Laundry blocked uh, the Petito family on her cell phone and on Facebook. So and on social media. So there's a real act. You know, you took an act of omission. There's an act of commission yep. right there. And if this was, if they were going to be charged criminally, there is an overt act, right? Isn't there has to be an uh, an act and a physical movement? Uh, I, I remember I used to teach, and that was it, a bodily movement, an act, right? And and there was mens re and, uh, right, the mental Actus state of rea. mind, yeah, actus, the and the act, right? So yeah. there's the act right there, actus reus, right? Right. So I, I have no doubt that that caused her great distress and emotional distress once she learned her phone was blocked. But did she have a duty to keep her phone open for repeated, you know, contacting when she was instructed by her attorney, do not say anything, do not respond. I don't think there's any action that can come from that. I think what they're trying to do and, and the one case that I did find, it was kind of unique. It was a, uh, just a, real quick, it was a bank in Florida. And the bank teller had an email that was circulated about someone who's a robber and gave a description. In walks in this young man who's in the general, fitting the general description uh, of the person in the email. So she hits the silent alarm. Person comes up, he has a check, he has his license, he wants to ID himself and cash the check. She checks him out and uh, tells him, I'll be right back and goes to alert somebody else. She's already verified who he is and he's trying to cash a check. So it was clear that he's not robbing the bank. There, there was no any overt actions to suggest the bank robbery. So after hitting the silence alarm, silent alarm, the police are responding. This action, the police ultimately came in, they grabbed him, they, they stepped on his head, and, you know, he suffered some severe injuries during the process of being arrested. So the action was kind of calling the bank out 
for an omission. They failed to notify the police in a timely manner that this was a false alarm, which led to his harm. So if you think of it in a little more abstract, the failure to act in, in, uh, in this case, the failure to act caused the result uh, additional harm, I should say, not the actual harm. Losing a child is, is, you know, horrific in itself, but this not talking to them and not answering questions. Additional pain and suffering, Joe? They cite in their complaint a statement that was put out hoping, uh, we know there's a surge taking place. We wish that uh, Gabby is reunited. So, I mean, they're trying to use that kind of theory that they put this forth, uh, giving them hope that Gabby was alive when they knew she was dead. Right. Now, let me just say one other thing, and I'll ask your opinion about it. Like I said, I think he revealed to his parents that she's dead. I don't think he told the parents how she died uh, and that he killed her, but I think they knew uh, just to enforce the gravity of the situation. And one of the things that I point to is we know that there was the notebook and he revealed in that notebook taking responsibility for, you know, ending Gabby's life. So my impression is if he would have told that, you know, to his parents, what would be the point of revealing it in this notebook? I think he wanted to come clean and just before he ended his life, to reveal to them, you know, like I'd like to see what the actual wording was. And that would give me more of an understanding. Did he lie to them? Did he tell the truth to them? Or was he trying to just clear his conscience now? And, you well, know, you know, Joe, I think we've had this conversation before where was this, was the counsel from the attorney and the way the parents handled it, did that directly or indirectly contribute and or cause Brian Laundry to commit suicide. Because I gotta tell you, I, I mean, it's it's Monday morning quarterbacking. It, it is, but the point is, a son doing twenty five to life alive is better than a son dead being eaten by alligators yeah. in the Mayakahatchee Preserve. And you know, your point is is you know, it, it, it hit me hard because I do represent. I have a a client now, nineteen years old, accused of felony murder. And I'm concerned for this kid and don't think that this case doesn't come to mind. Uh, so I'm overextending myself and making, taking every call and doing whatever I could do. But I agree. I think the parents alluded to something after they found him dead that they wish they could have changed his mind. They kind of sensed that's where he was in his state of mind. So, you know, it just, it, I'm sure Bertolino is beating himself up about this because there is no more important relationship than the attorney-client relationship at that point, you know, for him to talk to. I mean, even talking to the parents is dangerous. It's not a protected conversation, you know? So talking to your attorney and, and expressing to the client from the attorney what his legal jeopardy is, what his exposure is, where this case might go, he's not going to get that from his parents. No. He needs to hear it from his attorney, and the attorney should take, you know, observation of what, you know, reaction he's getting. So, uh, again, it's Monday morning quarterbacking, but to be honest with you, I think that was a, a, a big 
contributor to what happened. I mean, Joe, we have another uh, attorney in the chat, Tom Cusinelli. He's from the NYPD Legal Bureau. Personally, while I have sympathy for Gabby's family, I think that they, she might not be successful. The tortfeasor is Brian and not the parents. It is. And the he's, he's making a great point. If you look at the complaint, they're alleging in this complaint all the stuff Brian did. They're really going through what Brian did. Yeah, because I wonder, like, what is the, that the fact that she was strangled and it was blunt trauma, what does that really have to do with the parents' culpability? No, I, that struck me as a little strange. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like our podcast, and I think you'd be crazy not to, we're two sexy guys, when we bring on Joe Murray, and <laughs> Joe Murray's even sexier than me and Phil, because all the women are calling me up and say, hey, could you bring Joe Murray back on, you know? <laughs> Anyway, if you like our podcast, go to our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And if you want to help support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have uh, channel members, our YouTube channel members, that we give additional content to, we, we're nice to. And that has five different levels. And I see we have a new member in the chat, Infamous Truth Teller. I love that name. Thank you so much for joining our YouTube family. You know, we've covered this case since the beginning, and it's it's such a, a heartbreaking, heartbreaking case. And there are so many issues with it. And my feelings are that I was so, so very surprised at the amount of money they're suing for. It's very low. It was only like $100,000 or $110,000. And that struck me as to yeah, why that, would you even bother? That's, that's not going to be the demand when, when the – if the case survives and moves forward, that's not going to be the demand. They just have to put something uh, in there. I think the first amount was 30000 That sounds like a jurisdictional limit question. Like in, in uh, New York, the civil court, which lower than the Supreme Court, the civil court jurisdictional limit is 25000 It was just recently raised. But uh, so you have to, you know, uh, make that allegation in your complaint that it exceeds the jurisdictional limits of the lower court. Therefore, jurisdiction it sits with the Supreme Court. I think that's what that was. But I got to tell you, you know, something like this could be not about money. It could be if they survive a motion to dismiss. And I agree with that other attorney. I don't see the duty, the legal duty that they broke, uh, they breached in order to satisfy the elements. But if they somehow, because of the the particularity of these uh, allegations survive a motion to dismiss. Then they go into discovery and it could be as simple as that. They want to hear them explain what happened. You know, even if they don't know, you know, what happened, they want to hear it. They just want to hear from them uh, what they know. I personally don't think it's going to survive. I, I don't see the ground here. I'm even trying to stretch that other case where the bank, you know, they first dismissed it and then the, the appeals court overturned it and said, no, there is a cause of action. I want to point out one other thing I noticed in here. Paragraph 31, Christopher Laundry and Roberta Laundry exhibited extreme and outrageous conduct, which constitutes behavior under the circumstances, which goes beyond all possible bounds of decency and is is regarded as shocking, atrocious, and utterly intolerable in a civilized community. That's textbook boilerplate language for punitive damages. Punitive damages are above and beyond 
your compensatory damages, comp compensating you for what harm was done to you is compensatory damages. Punitive damages is punishing damages. So, you know, this is not, everyone keeps saying it's not about money, but, you know, this punitive damage claim, maybe it's being asserted because it widens the scope of what they're allowed to ask during a deposition and in discovery, it, it could be. You but, know, Joe, Tom Cusinelli, the other attorney in the chat who says he's sexy too, He's trying yeah. to knock. He's trying to knock you off the show, and he's trying to take your spot. Yeah. He said the amount on oral argument at trial can be argued that a closing, unless they amend the complaint, the parents just want closure. That's his opinion. It could be. It could be. Like I said, Tom, they're trying to get past the motion to dismiss to start discovery and do a, you know depositions and and get whatever information they can, text messages, phone records, all that stuff, which. You know, they may not have and they may think it may help. You know, they may ask them questions about when they all went to the uh, campgrounds after he returned. You know, there's so much that I'm sure they want to ask them to get that information. But I, I got to be honest with you. I think this is a mistake and they should, you know, this we're talking about the parents of one dead child suing the parents of another dead child. And what happened happened between these two kids. The parents did not kill her. Yeah, but you're right, Joe. But the the, the behavior of the parents, uh, uh, the laundries was quite egregious, in my opinion. Egregious and whether it, 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 it floats illegality or just it comes to where they can be charged with a civil matter, which is what's happening now. Maybe it's a good thing that, you know, this could be closure, you know. Infamous right. Truth Teller, thank you so much for the $5 Super Chat. I feel they might have sufficient evidence for a civil case regarding phone conversation with Brian and had knowledge prior to them finding him. Very possible. Foxy Doxy, thank you for the four ninety nine Super Chat. Having been a juror, I feel like this would be hard to prove, even though you think that they deserve that it's besides the point in regards to the trial. You know, I just want to play a little bit of of um, Stephen Bertolino on the Ashley Banfield show. Oh, here we go. Uh, to hurt himself, you know, and he did it right away. It makes perfect sense that that's where it is. The thing, the part you know, was underwater. I'm sorry. Sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. Do you know if he took any um, uh, any kind of medications out with him in the backpack or in the dry bag that might have contained any sort of substances that would have um, helped him in a quest to commit suicide? I have no knowledge of any substances whatsoever, either prescribed or otherwise. Do you have any knowledge of the contents of the dry bag or the backpack? Not at all. And, you know, to my, to my understanding, the parents, uh, Chris and Roberta, didn't know what was in the bag, the backpack, uh, when Brian left the house. You know, I, I believe we were asked that question on uh, September 17th. And, you know, Chris and Roberta said they didn't know what he put in the backpack. You know, he just, you know, had the backpack packed and said, I'm going out for a hike. To that end, I want to talk a little bit about the timing of all of it, because the press sort of, you know, felt a little yanked around, as did the police, with the timing of when, you know, Brian went on his hike. Originally, it was Tuesday the 14th, and then late into this whole uh, ordeal, it became Monday. I heard you speak on uh, Chris Cuomo's program the other day, suggesting that you, in fact, were the person to, to call the FBI and notify them 
the next day after he didn't return, which would be Tuesday, correct? So it is correct that I notified the FBI and, you know, you'll have to forgive me because the days were blending together. And, you know, I spoke to the FBI just today on, on that issue again. And, you know, the FBI confirmed it is well documented on their side uh, that it was Thursday. And, you know, I was reminded that uh, I specifically said, you know, Brian didn't come home you know, tonight. You know, would you come home, you know, having all the press and everything else going on out there? The confusion initially was Chris and Roberta were telling me it was Tuesday and Tuesday night Chris went out to look for him. It was Wednesday that Chris and Roberta went to look and hiked a little bit in the preserve. And it was Thursday that they retrieved the car. We then received some information from press that indicated that they had video of the car in the driveway on Wednesday. So we had to go back with Chris and Roberta step by step of each day. Uh, They had been in their home every day. The days were blending together. It was very stressful. And when we went through the period and... I showed them the video clip of the Mustang on the, I believe it was the 15th in the driveway. Um, You know, Chris said to me, well, then it had to be Monday. And I went back to the FBI and the FBI said, yes, you know, know, we believed it was Monday from the beginning, uh, but we do understand that the days were blending together. So as I but said, this is my problem, that the days blending together, and I only interrupt because I'm a mother of boys, and if my son had unexpectedly come home from a, a trip without his fiance, um, stopped talking, refused to speak to, to police, uh, she's reported missing. He is, in your, as you said, mistaken characterization, grieving. I mean, that tells me that he is apoplectically sad, um, as you mischaracterized it as grieving. It is, at the very least, horrifically sad. And he walks out my door and doesn't come home. I do not forget that date. That date is etched in my mind as a mother. And I dare say that my children's father would feel exactly the same way. So I struggle with any mistake about what day my extremely distraught son went out on a hike and didn't come home. And that may be true, you know, for everyone. Um, But I would also tend to bet that you haven't been in the position that the laundries have been put in in the last three to four to five weeks. And in that week in particular. You know, Joe, I just, I just, I just want to note, first of all, I love Ashley Banfield. And I I mean, if you watch that whole interview, she destroyed him. And I, I would, you know, first of all, how, how does a journalist destroy an attorney? I mean, that shouldn't happen. An attorney, but it's so good to see the attorney on the hot seat Instead of me or Phil or you sitting on the hot seat getting grilled by some attorney, Tom Cusinelli, thank you so much for the 999 super chat. So, and when he said the days all blended together, could you imagine you as a law enforcement officer saying that to the FBI? No They'd way. say, Oh, really, Joe Murray? Put your hands behind your back. You're under arrested for perjury. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's a good question. I mean, I, I've never encountered that or even contemplated that, you know, just presuming attorneys are very careful talking to the FBI anyway, and you're not speaking with firsthand knowledge. You're giving upon information and belief from someone, your client, a witness, some piece of evidence. But uh, yeah, that's an interesting, it's an interesting, uh, you know, concept that the attorney knowingly making a false statement to a federal officer, 
And then later on claiming that all the days all just blended in together. Are you kidding me? Why didn't he just say that I made a mistake? I mean, you know what? I made a mistake. I meant to say Wednesday or two, whatever it was, you know, but he, he's saying, oh, the days, that, that that excuse, the days blended together. That's uh, like Billy said, I don't know if that would fly with the FBI had you been in a law enforcement officer that was being uh, questioned about whatever. Uh, you might be facing a perjury rap, you know? So uh, I don't yeah, know. I, I don't know. I, I don't see it in this. Hey, Joe, I just want to, there's someone in the chat, Lindsay, 499, super chat. Thank you so much. Joe, do you think they're accusing the laundries of so many things so that they don't plead the fifth? Well, there's not a lot they can plead the fifth to, you know, the, 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 the only thing would be like a criminal facilitation. Um, but I, I, I just don't even see this thing going, getting that far. You know, they're, you know, I just want to tell Cusinelli, here's the citation to this case, because this is the only way I think they can possibly do it. It's Rodolfo Valadares versus Bank of AmeriCorp. It's June 2nd of 2016. And the citation is, it's uh, number SC14-1629. I'm not sure which... I'm not familiar with the Florida citations, but uh, this this case might be the only way they can get this theory through. The failure to report caused damage. In this case, the failure to notify the police that this was not the bank robber, and then the police came in, tackled him, you know, stepped on his neck or whatever, causing him injuries. And they said that omission, failure to do so, that is actionable and even for punitive damages. So maybe that's the case that they're looking at and they're proceeding under, but uh, I just don't see it. I don't see it, and it's ill-advised, too, for the family, for their own purposes, their own closure and moving on, because as a plaintiff, you are subject, and Tom will confirm this, you are subject yourself to you know being questioned and and having to turn over information that may not be so flattering to you. You know, I mean, just think about, first of all, that she left home and went there and was living with them. I mean, I, you know, I have no reason to, to suspect any foul play, but maybe there was something that now will have to be revealed. Or maybe, you know, it just the, the appearance of it will put them in a bad light. Why would you do this? Why would you open yourself up to this? Because I think that they want they want everything out in the open. They want to show the behavior of the Petitos out in the open. I don't really think in this instance it's about money. Uh, Joe uh, Artemis, thank you for the nine ninety nine super chat. Joe, you're getting you're getting all these law questions. If Chris and Roberta did know Brian killed her, how would that not be somehow aiding and abetting? Does it boil down to Brian not having a warrant for his arrest before he disappeared? No, knowledge of a crime is not even close to being aiding and abetting. Knowledge of a crime after the fact, I would even include. We're talking about after the fact. Nobody's alleging they knew before the crime. So th there's no way they can attach aiding and abetting after the fact. I mean, unless they're concealing his identity or, or concealing evidence of the crime, they could be charged in that fashion. But I, I just don't see it. I mean, we're not talking about the crime took place here and and they did something to conceal it. 
you know, it, 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 it was. Joe, what, what about if they uh, planned this, uh, you know, this camping trip, they went out and bought the camper. If there's enough information on interviews, let's say with other family members or the text messages that showed that they were going to help him to escape, to, to uh, escape justice. No, I don't think that there was any evidence of that. I mean, honestly, I think he was probably despondent when he came back. He revealed to them that she's dead, not how she died. And, you know, they wanted to just spend some time together, yeah. you know, yeah, but fearing, fearing what he was going to do. Yeah, and but hypothetically, let's say hypothetically, there is text messages that they they make uh, overt admission that, yeah, uh, you're going to take the trailer and you're going to go into the woods and we'll be in touch with you or whatever. Now, if you have that, let's say that that exists. That's obviously a hypothetical situation. Isn't that aiding and abetting a fugitive? I mean, he was wanted at that time. If they participated in, in some way, not just parroting well, what he's saying. You know what I mean? They, they, they went and bought him a new cell phone. They they bought the, the trailer. They went and, uh, you know, they went and uh, uh, camped for a couple of days. And we don't know what was said. I mean, there might be enough in text messages or, you know. Yeah, you, you're I not think I, to answer your question, technically, yes. If they actively were involved in concealing evidence or trying to plan his escape yes they would be chargeable however i don't think that's the case they went on a family ga gathering together to spend time together and then he left to go into the park that he loved and he didn't go far he he, he didn't go far at all and killed himself it was only because of the weather and the the flooding that he, it wasn't that he wasn't right found, away right. yeah right. you know I mean, joe, he, said joe he was decomposed you know joe, even though right you're a lot even though you're a live commercial, we have to read your commercial. Okay. <laughs> Joe Murray in the house tonight. I'm so glad to have you back, Joe. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. The infamous truth teller has another question. Police off the cuff, what about the spokesperson for the department that was throwing the questions back at the reporter because he had no solid answers to give about how they missed Brian sneaking out from sneaking out of the house. Remember that? We all spoke how that was sort of gross negligence that the yeah. department... They actually just had a camera on him. Like, how how is that going to, you know, if someone walks out of the house, how is the camera going to catch where he's going? You right. better have bodies on the ground. But I don't think the department wanted to spend the money for 24-7 surveillance, and they paid the price for that. Yeah, Absolutely. and that's not actionable either. I mean, there's, no. there's broad discretion for resource allocation of, you know, municipal police departments. You You can't you know, force them to take certain types of action, uh, irregardless of the fact that it was negligent, not having him in sight and keeping tabs on him in some way, that's not something they would be, uh, you know, able to sue over. Yeah, we called well, for... Go ahead, Phil. Go ahead, Phil. Well, we, call, we called for a surveillance both front and back of the house, and we said that it should have been manned by a body, not by a camera. And the reason being is, let's say Brian comes out and he's wearing, I'm, this is Brian hat. 
you know, and he walks out. What good is that going to do to police? By the time they get a car uh, out to where his location is, uh, it's too late. He's 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 gone, you know. So uh, cameras are just not going to do the job. Cameras might be for surveillance, but if they really wanted to keep tabs on a guy that they suspected of murder, there should have been a 24-hour-a-day surveillance both front and back of that house. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just obviously a manpower issue. It sounds like I think they should have, uh, you know, the FBI was on board at that point. They should have enlisted help from the FBI or other departments, uh, in that jurisdiction, whether they be neighboring uh, jurisdictions or the state police, he should have had, and I don't want to, you know, Monday morning quarterback, nobody, or, you know, criticize any other departments. It's not my uh, my way of, of being, you know, being a law enforcement officer. But there really should have been uh, surveillance on him. And, you know, listen, uh, not even a, a loose surveillance, a very tight surveillance. The minute he walks out of the house, you start up the car and you, you're following him and letting him know. So I don't think there's a problem with that. It's not illegal. Uh, it doesn't fall into a harassment guideline. And uh, it, it is what it is. It didn't happen. And unfortunately, he uh, was able to, you know, get away and go into the woods. And uh, we know what happened after that. Yeah, but don't forget, he at that time, he was not even charged. They didn't even have, you know, probable cause to, to arrest him yet. So he wasn't charged and he wasn't accused or suspected of a crime that, there was a danger of him repeating. He killed his girlfriend on, on some trip. You know, it's not like uh, he was going to do something again. So there was a public safety issue. I mean, I think it, like you said, it was a resource issue. But uh, at that point, they didn't even have, you know. Yeah, but Joe, if you if you were the uh, commanding officer at that precinct, and I know, I know that if you were faced with that case, you'd have had somebody on him. He's the he's the main suspect, and you know the media attention. Every, the walls were closing in on him at that point. They might not have been, you know, so close where he was actually wanted, but. The walls were closing in on him. He had no, uh, you know, no viable answers for where she was, what happened to her. He returned, you know, it was out in the open at that point. And I think had you had to make the decision, I know the decision that you would have made. I know the decision I would have made and Billy would have made. There would have been a 24-hour surveillance if we could have provided it. And if not, we would have probably asked for help elsewhere, you know. I mean, I get where you're coming from. He wasn't, uh, you know, listed as wanted at that point. But if he was wanted, they would have knocked on the door and arrested him, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Snow Lion, I'm it's sure working. the parents had a pretty good idea what happened to their son Brian when he didn't return home that night or the next day. The parents never showed any emotion whatsoever. Prozac zombie, I like that. Um, but they're not required I, to. I mean, people think that everyone is obligated to live their life in the media. That's that's the worst thing to do. And I would tell everyone that I'm representing, just avoid it. Don't talk I bet Baldwin wishes you were his lawyer. Yeah, really. Yeah. You know, average uh, baby, thanks for the 499 super chat. They helped him clean out the van when he got home. Doesn't that make them responsible if they knew he did it? You got to prove it. Again, you're assuming he knew he did. I think they knew that she was dead. I mean, because that's the obvious question. Where's Gabby? You know, and and I think when he came home on that earlier trip, he revealed that, and I, and I have no evidence of this, but I just... From experience, I think he may have revealed their domestic situation erupting. So, uh, you know, but cleaning out the van, there's nothing wrong with cleaning out the van unless they're cleaning out evidence of a crime, you know, a, a bloody rag or something that they had knowledge uh, was evidence of a crime. So, 
Again, so that's it another one. Like Very tough. And I think the police got it pretty pretty quick, right? They were, they turned it over. I, I don't know how quick it was that they got the van, but it sounds like, based on the lawsuit, it sounds like there was either text messages or phone conversation with his parents when he was on his way back after the 27th when he killed her. Based on that lawsuit, I think it was uh, item number 18 or 17, that there was conversation between Brian and his parents. So it, whether it be text messages or just phone calls, uh, I don't know if that's a jump, but uh, it sounds like they believe that they they state that in the lawsuit. What, what, anywhere from 14 to 17 was the uh, the items, Joe. If you're looking it up, yeah, I'm looking. Uh, you know, there's a couple of paragraphs that you know just just looking at 18. It's uh, a 17 on August 27th. It is believed that Brian Laundry sent a text to Nicole Schmidt in which he referred to Gabrielle Petito's grandfather Stan. By name, Gabrielle Petito never called her grandfather by his name. Why is this in a complaint against the parents? This is what I don't understand. Like they're putting a lot of facts yeah. about stuff Brian did that was hurtful to them. But why in this complaint are they putting that in there? But yes, there are a couple of, uh, they mentioned text messages, believed and therefore averred that on or about August 28th, Brian Laundrie advised his parents Christopher Laundry and Roberta Laundry that he had murdered Gabrielle Petito. Where are they getting this from? I well, mean, they it, did say it is believed. It's not fact. They may have gotten that information from the FBI when they had the sit down. They had a sit down with the FBI about a month ago where the FBI went over all of their uh, investigation. I, I mean, I don't know if they showed them every single thing, but that may have been revealed at that meeting because and, and I called for it. I said the family needs to know what the investigation of Gabby Petito's body, the van, whatever search warrants, they have the right to know the results of those uh, those investigative tactics and means and, you know, the physical examination of evidence. They needed to know that. I think. Uh, they were entitled to that. So maybe during that uh, that meeting that they had, that conference, uh, maybe it was revealed then because it sounds like they're hanging a hat on something there, Joe. They're saying specifically on the 28th. So maybe he sent the text, I killed her. You know, we don't know. Oh, Joe, yeah, it also could have been, it could have been in that notebook that they recovered. He could have admitted to a lot of things. And even the fact that he told his parents could have been in that notebook. Could have been a diary. Could have been a, uh, yeah. a diary too. It, it could have been, but my, my guess is that he told them something and then clarified it in this thing for, for them to know, you know, I don't, I don't think he was writing in his notebook for the world to, to see, you know, I think it was, I mean, if you're going to kill yourself, who who are you talking to when you kill yourself? You know, like I would yeah. be talking to my kids or, or, you know, my parents were alive. I, I would, you know, talk to would them. You, would you call us and cancel your ad? I would say, leave it to Billy. He's got that word, I tell you. You know, Joe, some of the people in the chat, um, there's talking about, you know, like a prosecutor and this this is not this is not being prosecuted this is not they're not being prosecuted this is a civil case and facts will come out i mean the greatest example of a civil case where we got all the information that we wanted to get that we didn't know was the oj simpson case where he was totally found liable for the killing of his wife exactly and and of the uh ronald goldman Yep. In the civil case, but we in the criminal case, 
It was a case of jury nullification, in my opinion, because if I say that without saying, in my opinion, I'll get attacked by some people say, oh, it found not guilty. You know, to me, there was tractor trailers full of evidence against O.J. Simpson. I think there was actually even more evidence revealed at the civil trial than there was at the criminal trial because the parameters are are much more lenient, I guess. And uh, I'm just curious to see, Joe, just uh, you might be able to take us through this. Now, uh, if the lawsuit does go forward, we'll go into depositions Will we be able to hear any, uh, we probably won't hear any of the specific evidence at deposition, so questioning. So I guess we would have to wait for hearings before trial or the actual trial to get specifics regarding like, you know, maybe there's text messages or is that, is that correct, Joe? Can you walk us through that? Uh, you're saying, are we going to hear the testimony? In other words, if the, if the lawsuit does proceed, there'll be depositions. Depositions yeah. will be questioning all the concerned parties. Right. But there, there may be some information revealed from those questions because you are under oath and maybe they'll reveal things. But what I'm getting at is we don't know what it is that the, the uh, uh, Petito family is hanging, you know, their attorney is hanging on for the lawsuit. Like what are they hanging their hat on? based on uh, proceeding with this lawsuit. Now, there may be stuff that we don't know about. That's what I'm getting at. So when would that be revealed? Let's say there's text messages between uh, Brian and his family that indicate that he, you know, he tells them that she's dead, I killed or something like that. When would we, what stage of this lawsuit would we find out about that? Would that be in the trial stage? So Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I, I hope they're not going to just try this case in the media. I think this is, if I had the ability to talk to Joe Petito, I would tell him to withdraw this thing. I mean, when you talk about closure and healing, this is the worst thing that you could do to try to get closure. And I would just implore upon him, you know, about, you know, the siblings and everyone else who's going through this together, you know, as a family put this to rest, stop this. You know, I just think it's, it's not going to work out the way he thinks it's going to work out. And, uh, but to answer your question, the first part is the complaint. Then there's going to be an answer, admit, deny, not enough information. You know, they'll respond with an answer or they can move right away without answering with a motion to dismiss. If they survive the motion, they file an answer and they'll make a demand for something called a bill of particulars. A bill of particulars kind of heightens with more detail the allegations contained in the complaint. There'll be discovery exchanges. If they have text messages, they'll be asked to turn them over. Uh, They'll at that point have to turn them over if they're in their possession. Or what they could do is ask for authorizations uh, and, and subpoena the actual carriers to get whatever information they have. I'm sure that when this thing hit, law enforcement um, either subpoenaed them themselves or, you know, preservation letters went out to preserve all of this so it wouldn't get deleted or erased. So I think that material is there and they can apply for that material. So, but when would we hear about it unless one of the lawyers or parties reveals it? which I think is, is, you know, just, I hope doesn't happen. This should not be in the media, this whole thing. I mean, when does this family, when do these kids going to school get to actually return to normalcy? You know, like, I, I, I just think it's horrible. It's so horrible because they both lost kids. So now we want to just destroy this family. 
you know, as if they're not hurting enough. I, Andrew, Andrew so B, bad. thank you for the $10 uh, super chat. And he's, his comment is, thanks for all the great content. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for Andrew. following us. Tom Cusinelli, obviously, he's talking about something where he passed discovery and pre-trial is when some of this information will come out. Yeah. Uh, Sandra H, he wants justice for his daughter. What's Sean justice? B. What's justice? Brian killed her, and he's dead. What? Where, where are you getting justice out of? Well, they might they might know more than we do, Joe. They might know that uh, the family was covering for him, that they were uh, well aware of the fact that Brian killed if, if her. If that's the case, and they're covering from him. There's a statute of limitations on criminal charges, which is at least five years on felony charges. They're going to just take the fifth. That's it. It's over. Well, uh, well, I, I I agree with you that I wouldn't want to go forward with uh, this type of a lawsuit without, you know, n not just on a wing and a prayer. I would want solid. If there was solid information that they were well aware of it and they aided him to try and escape, then I would consider possibly moving forward with a civil lawsuit. Otherwise, like you said, uh, you know, Gabby died. Uh, God bless her soul. Uh, the person responsible is dead. And I think it would be, you know, I don't believe in, in, in closure with people who hold closure. I don't think if you lose a child, it's an unnatural, uh, act that occurs and there is no closure for something like that. I think no. what happens is you're able to move forward or you're able to move past it and just move on with your life. And that would be my advice to them. If there is nothing, uh, in this lawsuit, if it's just a lawsuit on a wing and a prayer or, you know, somebody decided to take it and say, hey, we can, you know, mess with the laundries or whatever, which I hope is not the case, uh, then I would agree with you, Joe. But it sounds like to me like there's more to here than we're seeing. It just, you know, they, they've referenced several things in that lawsuit. And I just think that there's a great possibility that there's more than we know. And again, I'm going to point uh, this is the third time I'm going to say it. What happened between the FBI uh, with the negotiations between the laundry family and the FBI, and also what happened? What did what did the uh, uh, Petito family learn from their conference with the FBI just about a month ago? I, you know, I just you know, want to I just want to put a little bit more of the um, Stephen Bertolino and the Ashley Banfield interview here, just because I love to watch it. They're flat out saying it's not true. So let me let me just play this moment for you, and I get you to comment on the other side. Mr. Bertolino says that he called and reported Brian missing sooner than Friday and that it was just the official report filed on Friday. Is that true? I can tell you that the Northport Police Department, that when we got the call on Friday that he was being reported missing was news to us. I was in the room myself. It was uh, a very uh, surprising moment. Uh, I can say that 100% certainty. Um, Whatever he may have said in passing, you know, this is a situation where we're trying to, you know, they were uncooperative on Saturday, not revealing any details. We've got a missing young lady. Um, really, their credibility was, you know, what's going on there. He, if I'm understanding him correctly, he says that he may have said something to an, someone in the FBI. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Um, what I know is that none of our actions and what we've said show that that's a possibility at all. So Mr. Bertolino, they say the police and the FBI have been in lockstep all the way through this and that they would have known had you reported it to the FBI. How do you respond? So Ashley, what I just heard, if you listen closely, is that um, 
the Northport uh, police gentleman, Josh Taylor, I believe. I don't want to get his name wrong. Is it, is it Mr. Taylor? Correct. Okay. So what Mr. Taylor just said was that I purportedly re reported it to the FBI. He doesn't know. And therein is your answer. He does not know. I can tell you that the FBI does not have a problem with this. Today at 2 p.m., 2.15, I had a meeting with two representatives from the FBI in my office, and they once again concurred and confirmed there is absolutely no doubt that I informed the FBI that Brian didn't come home on day one. Let me tell you something else, Ashley, before you interrupt me again. <laughs> I did not call anybody on Friday. I heard Mr. Taylor's press conference on Thursday. On Thursday, Mr. Taylor said, when asked a question, do you know where Brian is? He said, yes. He was asked a question a little bit later in that same presser. Do you know exactly where he is? He said, yes. I was shocked. I immediately called my clients and said, do you know where Brian is? Because I don't, we haven't seen him. Was he picked up? Because if he was picked up by the PD, they would have to inform me. And they said, no. At that point, I, I, I got a, I, I'll disclose this. I reached out to somebody in the afternoon and I got a, an ethical opinion as an attorney for Brian Laundrie as a missing person, perhaps, what could I do? Once I received that ethical advice, if you will, decisions were made between me and Chris and Roberta. With that knowledge, Friday came. Friday evening, somewhere around 4.45, I received the call from the FBI. Let me be perfectly clear, unequivocally, I received the call from the FBI. I did not call them. It came up on the screen in my truck. I told my daughter she needed to leave the truck. The FBI said to me, we got a tip that Brian was seen in Tampa. And I said, that's wonderful, because as you know, we haven't seen him all week. We, we told you he was missing. And the FBI agent said, yes, we know that, but we want to come to the house to see if he's there. And I said, well, who gave you the tip? Who said this? Because I thought it was a ruse for the FBI to get into the house, was my belief. I then said to my daughter that I need to take care of this. And I told the FBI that I needed to take care of something with my daughter. We agreed on a time for 6.15. At 6.15, the FBI came to the laundry residence on the 17th. They came inside, we had discussions. I was here in New York and on FaceTime, FaceTime with them, we agreed that the best cause of action and the, the, the formal procedural cause of act, uh, course of action would be to file a missing persons report so that Brian could. First of all, I just want to cover this quickly. A missing person is not someone wanted for a crime. It's not someone who's wanted for a warrant. It's not someone 18 years of age or older who may have left home for other reasons. So he doesn't qualify to be a missing person. And I know the a lot of, look, we were pulling our hair out. We don't, I don't have that much hair either during this case of when they were referring to him as a person of interest. I just so despise that term, you know, though he was a suspect. He was not a person of interest, you know. And Joe, I'm just saying one of the things, I, one of the reasons I played that too is that sometimes people talk too much. And this attorney too, shut up. 
You have no obligation to be on all these shows unless you're trying to pump up your law practice. Shut up, you know? In his defense, I just want to say that don't forget that there was a campsite in front of the, the laundry's house, and they were not speaking. Obviously, he told them not to speak. So perhaps that was the strategy to try to alleviate that constant pressure banging on the door. I'm a dog, the bounty hunter, banging on the door. Maybe that was the strategy. Hey, listen, you know what? I'll try to give them what I can, you know, uh, through the news and through the media to hopefully alleviate uh, the pressure that they were under. I just I think the guy did a pretty good job. You know, uh, there were some mistakes. No, I, I have to disagree with you. First of all, he does not belong representing them in Long Island when the case is in Florida. How could you talk to the FBI and say, go ahead, search the house? I mean, come on. That's ridiculous. I, I think, you know, when we talked about this as it was uh, unfolding, people were asking me, like, hey, this guy's a real estate attorney, this, that, whatever. Why is he doing this? And I said the single most important thing at this time, because we don't even know what jurisdiction we're dealing with, is the relationship. And they had, obviously we learned, they had a long-term, very good relationship with this family. And at that point, I think that was the priority. To get so why didn't he get a hold of a colleague in Florida or look up somebody and say, we're going to work together on this? He, Billy's got a point. He should have been boots on the ground in Florida. I think that uh, decisions could have been made much better with respect to his client had he been boots on the ground. He would have got a better uh, a better read on Brian uh, had he been there from the beginning or someone could have been there. And listen, the parents being in a frantic state, they're trying to protect their son. He's wanted for a murder. We know that, we know that they believe that he killed her. And I'm just going to assume that. And, you know, they may not have picked up on the, uh, you know, the, the fact that he could have been suicidal. Whereas you have a third party, an attorney that might ask questions and might have recognized it. And I think that the attorney would have done his client a, a, a better you know, he would have served his client better had he had himself or someone else, another colleague, boots on the ground. And, you know, listen, it, it's Monday morning quarterbacking, but maybe this kid would have been alive today. And the parents might have been visiting him in jail. Like Billy said, he would have been alive. But, uh, you know, uh, and there would have been who yeah, knows you, what would have happened at the trial. You make all good points. And I, I agree with that, that he should have had somebody there, I think. But again, the attorney doesn't dictate you know, all the parameters. Maybe he presented that to the client, said, look, I have someone I feel comfortable with who, Could be. you know, would, would make this. And they were like, no, you're our friend. We told you let's, because maybe they knew, you know, like I said, I think they may have known that she was dead. Maybe not how, but they knew. And that's why they were like, we want you, you know, to walk us through this until God forbid something happens where he gets arrested. I, I, and I think he did a good job. When you think about all the allegations that the parents were, they were doing this, they were doing that, they were aiding and abetting and all that. Not one of his clients was ever charged with anything in connection with the murder of Gabby Petito. I mean, that's to me, he had three clients, the mother, the father, and Brian, you know? So at, at that point, you got to look at it. I mean, nobody was ever charged with the murder or, you know, you know, Joe, Joe, you make uh, unbelievable points and from the law, but I like, I guess a lot of it these days is the court of public opinion. 
Yes. And everyone sees the uh, laundries as these people that piss ice water, and they refuse to talk when they knew their son's uh, fiance was dead. They uh, refused to talk when it was clear that their son probably had committed suicide. You know, guys, this was an amazing show tonight. Joe, I'm so happy that I, you haven't been on the show because I know your law practice yeah. is pumping because of this ad that you do it's with the us. The commercials. <laughs> <laughs> and Listen, this is, Billy, I, I got a two-part question for Joe, and it's really relative. All right, Philly, I just want to say, you know, we're at uh, an hour and 20 minutes. I want to okay. start winding this okay. down. We'll, we'll down. Just, just, this is kind of a two-part question. Okay. Joe, you're the attorney that gets called by the laundry parents, Okay. Whatever they tell you, we want to talk to you. Now, are you going to interview Brian by himself, which I believe you would? And secondly, um, if he tells you that he committed the murder, uh, what are your obligations? So basically, would you have the parents in the room to hear the interview uh, of Brian if they called you? And secondly, uh, what would your obligation be if he admits that he committed murder? Amazing question, and it's so funny because someone posted a comment on one of our prior shows asking it to us to do a show to explain the entry of a defense attorney, particularly with the West, uh, that they were arrested, and what were the defense attorney's obligations be? So great question, and I'm happy to answer that. You must, you must speak to your clients alone. It's only privileged if everyone involved in the conversation is a privileged person, like Angela is an employee of my firm, she signed a uh, uh, attorney-client privilege um, uh, agreement that she would maintain the code of ethics on attorney-client privilege. If you have, and this was a, a problem I had with Ashley Banfield, who she's dead wrong on this, if you have a joint defense agreement and that's, you know, you have that in writing that I'm also representing the laundry parents and the son, then you can be together and discuss it. Ordinarily, having parents in the room, because I kick them out all the time, ordinarily when a client comes in and they want to talk to you, they want to have additional eyes and ears there so they can absorb it. And I tell them, I'll invite you back. But when we talk about the actual crime, I can't have any of you in here. So that is a, a paramount thing that you must do. You must protect that attorney-client privilege. You can't be nonchalant about it. The second question, if I interview a client and they reveal to me they committed the crime or whatever the, the crime is, in this case, if Brian said to me, Joe, I, I just, you know, I lost my mind. I just strangled her and I killed her. Our system of law is based on the presumption of innocence, and you have absolute right to remain silent from the time you're questioned by the police till the verdict is rendered. You're under no obligation, and I quite often will not call my client as a witness. Now, if my client takes the stand and I observe that he knowingly lies about something, I have a duty to report that to the court. I, I, I have an absolute duty. You cannot suborn perjury. And by allowing that to happen, I'm allowing him to perpetrate a fraud on the court and lie. My advice would be don't take the stand. And if you plan on saying this, you're going to submarine your whole case. So, 
In, to answer your question specifically, though, as long as he doesn't take the stand, even if he admitted okay. that he did it, we have constitutional rights, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, all these rights that must be put to the test. We don't want, you know, people obscuring rights and taking shortcuts. If the police obtained a statement and it was constitutionally permissible, it should be admitted. But if it wasn't, it should be suppressed. Okay. If the police obtained physical evidence in violation of the Fourth Amendment, we'll put that to test. And if it was illegally obtained, that will be suppressed. So a person who is actually guilty could possibly go free. But that is how our system is set up. We always uphold the Constitution and the constitutional rights of the individual. Okay, so I was under the impression if a client tells you straight out, I killed my girlfriend, that you would have to recuse yourself and make him get another attorney. Not so. Only if the person's going to testify. Right, you know, only if you're going to testify. Okay. No, I can't be a part of any okay. fraud, you know? Okay. All right, guys, you know something? Again, fantastic show, but I don't want to, you know, people are going to fall asleep in different parts of the world listening to us. And, Joe, again, I want to thank you so much. I mean, people love this show so much that the attorneys in the chat saying they're better looking than you and they want to take your spot. <laughs> Listen, I love the show. I've, I've been a longtime fan, and we had started our own podcast because of you and Duty Ron, but I've just been so busy. We're going to get that going again. You know, Ange has been working hard on that. You want to say hello, Ange, or goodbye, I should say? <laughs> Well, yeah, Phil, thank you so much. We love what oh, you Oh, no, thank you. You, you. you were great. Uh, Phil, final words. Final words. Uh, it was a pleasure to have Joe back on again. Joe, you know we love you. We uh, value your opinion. You're obviously, uh, it's easy doing that commercial. The things that I say, it's true. You're a great attorney. Um, with regard to this case, I'm interested to see where it goes. Uh, God bless Gabby Petito and her family. Uh, again, condolences all around. I mean, the, the laundry's lost a child. Uh, it's a terrible thing. It's unnatural. Like I said earlier, um, I'm just curious to see how much culpability they had, what the, uh, lawsuit is really all about. And, um, I guess we'll stay on top of it. We, uh, working hard at this stuff and, uh, we're going to keep it going. We hit the 25,000 mark the other night. We're hoping to keep going, keep giving us the thumbs up guys. We really appreciate the listeners, the subscribers. And if you're listening, we notice a lot of listeners on Facebook that aren't giving us the thumbs up, come over to YouTube, give us that thumbs up. Uh, it means a lot to us. It'll help us to keep growing and keep going. And, uh, we're going to keep providing the best content possible. 100%. We want your family. We want your cousins. We want your uncles, your aunts. Right. Turn us on to police off the cuff, real crime stories. Guys, thank you so much. All you guys listening tonight, have a safe night. Thank you so much. Stay safe, everyone. Good night. One episode, just